Most tragic episodes of state-initiated social engineering originate in a pernicious combination of four elements. The first element is the administrative ordering of nature and society. The second element is a high modernist ideology. It is best conceived as a strong, one might even say muscle-bound version of the self-confidence about scientific and technical progress, the expansion of production, the growing satisfaction of human needs, the mastery of nature, and above all, the rational design of social order. The third element is an authoritarian state that is willing and able to use the full weight of its coercive power to bring these high modernist designs into being. And the fourth element is closely linked to the third, a prostrate civil society that lacks the capacity to resist these plans. Neil and Adil, I'm excited to do another episode of Made You Think. Yes, sir. So uh, this book has been long overdue. I feel like we've been talking about doing this book since like 2017, but uh, it's finally here and we're joined again by Adil for another hopefully epic episode. <laughs> What's going on, guys? Thanks for having me back. Seems like we have a collective uh, six or seven reads of this book amongst the three of us. <laughs> yeah, this was my second time through it. Had you read it before, Adil? No, this was my first one. Okay. I feel like you've definitely come, to, come across the concepts before, though. Yeah, I'd read like, probably a hundred yeah. articles about this before reading the actual thing, so much of it was redundant, but yeah. Yeah. much more verbose. I actually don't think the book is that great like in terms of how it's written. Uh, it's pretty academic and dry, but yeah. the this concepts are... Yeah. yeah. When I tweeted about this book, one of my friends was like, oh, I've had this book on my shelf for uh, a couple years, and I was like, just listen to the episode. Don't worry <laughs> about the book. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the book is good, I mean, he, but I think he wrote it for an academic audience. I think that's yeah. like, it feels it was, that way anyway. It was an academic print originally, because what did he say when he started off? It, yeah, it was Yale, it's, it's printed, or it's published under Yale Agrarian Studies. Yeah. It was, or it was originally supposed to be just a book about farming, and then it kind of detoured into this, like, study of statecraft. Even though it was academic, I, yeah, I appreciated the informal tone, where he's just like, I might not be the best person to articulate this argument, but I am the person articulating it because I have encountered it. And there was an earnestness about that throughout the book that even though it was so dense, it actually made it much more approachable. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think like the, the he actually says that in the intro where he said, um, originally I set out to understand why the state has always seemed to be the enemy of the people who move around, to put it crudely. So he's talking about like, people who are like herders or like just who are kind of like outside of the the state run kind of system like not business people not legible people let's let's put it that way um that's a term he obviously comes back to a ton in this book i was curious like what were the prevailing theories to answer this question before he put this theory forward like was it just an assumption of incompetence on behalf behalf of the government was an assumption of malice like this now, because I, I have always lived knowing this concept, at least for as long as I have thought about it. I don't know, do you guys do you guys know what this theory replaced? I don't know what it replaced, but I suspect that the, the it was kind of like the communism argument, like, oh, like the theory is sound, but like the execution was bad. And I suspect it's kind of like that, right? Where like these state programs always kind of were trying to do the same thing, but everyone who tried it the next time was like, oh yeah, they just did it 
worse, then we're going to do it. Like we have a better strategy now, but it's really, you know, it's probably the concept that's a little flawed, yeah. not the, uh, not the execution necessarily. Well, and I think that he, he has a good line later on in the book where he talks about how there's this kind of like assumption that it's the fault of the people when these systems fail, when really it's the fault of the governing bodies trying to implement these like highly rigid systems. Uh, high modernism has a natural appeal for an intelligentsia and a people who may have ample reason to hold the past in contempt. Late colonial modernizers sometimes wielded their power ruthlessly in transforming a population that they took to be backward and greatly in need of instruction. So I think that he was probably responding. It, it, it's interesting to remember how like shortly ago colonialism ended, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Like it hasn't, it hasn't been that long since like Great Britain was running around just taking over, you know, parts of Africa and India and being like, you're British now, like follow these rules. Yeah. And I mean, and to a certain extent, like us is trying to do that in Vietnam and whatnot. And like, then you have all of the like communist and socialist influences. And so I think there was this pretty strong idea that, oh, if you're just like, smart and educated enough you can like fix these you know, savages and show them the right way to live and that like lasted for a while and so i think <laughs> this came out in the 80s 90s so it might have it might have been 98 yeah it might have actually there might have been a stronger belief in like high modernism at the time that he was criticizing and i actually think that reading this book now is such a great time to read it because I think we can actually frame a lot of the current political discourse as a struggle between like high modernist liberalism and a like populist conservatism that's like at least in America and I assume yeah, some of the rest sure. of the world too. I found it like he was actually pretty balanced. Like he's not criticizing high modernism in all cases. He's criticizing it in specifically authoritarian regimes yeah. and also in areas where you need to be relying on practical knowledge, which makes the contempt for locals and the contempt for uh, like the other particularly egregious. Yeah, Nat, to your point about uh, coming in and teaching the savages how to live, I feel like consulting firms do this all the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's who still does it. McKinsey helicoptering down yeah, and saying, yeah. like, oh, you We're guys just should you. be doing this. <laughs> Do it this way. And it'll be we'll fixed. call it CNN Plus. You're going to have yeah. <laughs> oh, no. 100 million subscribers. <laughs> yeah, that's, just, the, that's the, the current version of the colonialism. It's like the corporate colonialism. Uh, I remember... <laughs> my my family did a trip to Africa to go on safari once, and we were staying at this like really nice hotel resort thing out in the Serengeti, and we were having dinner with some of the other guests, and <laughs> this like small kind of like fight started because one of the other guests at the resort I don't remember who she was arguing with about this. It might have been us, but uh, she was basic. She was there. And of course, she was British, obviously. Uh, she was there because she realized that like all of the Maasai were running around without shoes and like they needed shoes. And so she was there to like bring shoes to the like people living in, you know, the Serengeti. And it was kind of like, you consider that maybe they don't need shoes or, or want them. Or, like shoes might be a bad thing. It was very, it was like the most like british like stereotypical like they, we need to give shoes to them <laughs> i was i was thinking about that story when i read this book i'm like oh yeah it's the it's the shoe lady in africa 
Yeah, I guess like it kind of, so there's two, there's like a few major concepts I feel like in this book, right? So one is this idea of legibility, which is that you need, I guess a state needs to be able to measure, to understand what's happening on the ground. They need some way to like standardize and measure what's happening. And so that could be like units of measure for land or for, you know, bushels of, of wheat or whatever food you're talking about. And the difference between like how a government would do it and how people on the ground would do it, it's kind of like your Serengeti example, right? It's like the people might have a completely different way of measuring that actually communicates more information. Like they were talking about like how, um, I forget where, I think it was like Ethiopia or something, we're talking about how they would measure like the land and how, and they would measure it in terms of how many like days a year it took to farm it rather than yeah. by like actual land area. Well, this because is, they didn't really uh, care about the area. It doesn't matter. Acres don't really matter to them. It was more like, well, how productive is this land and how, how hard is it for me to, to cultivate it? Well, this is like uh, Taleb's whole thing about the metric versus imperial system, right? Where the, the metric system is designed for state control, right? Where it, it's really easy to measure everything if everything's in orders of magnitude and mm -hmm. like highly regimented and easy to follow. Whereas the imperial system is actually based on intuitive units, right? Where a foot is a foot. A yard is about how long a pace is when you're running. A mile is about a thousand paces, right? And it's like they're all very easy things for you to just intuitively measure. Whereas like a meter and a kilometer have no basis in like actual day-to-day -day life. They're purely like state-invented units. There's a great irony in it being called the imperial system. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the 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 best example of this uh like this legibility idea and the consequences of it from the book is definitely this idea of uh scientific forestry and how so, yeah. when yeah. you just have when you have normal woods you have trees everywhere and you have bushes and shrubs and all this stuff you have a healthy ecosystem but then once a forest becomes an economic unit and you need to know how many uh, what cords of lumber you're going to get from each acre, then you start planting the trees in a perfect grid so that you can fit an exact number within there. And then you want to get rid of all of the bushes and shrubs and such so that they're not in your way when you go to harvest the wood. And that makes the forest very legible because you know exactly how many trees there are You and you plant all the same types so you know when they're going to be mature, when you can harvest them. It works great for spreadsheets but as they talk about in the book, that actually ends up killing the forest because you lose all the biodiversity, you lose all of the like other plants and animals that feed into the system, and the yield ends up dropping off dramatically over time because uh, there's just not that same ecosystem in place. And we're now seeing this in our modern food system in the U.S. and elsewhere where we've monocropped everything so intensely with like soybeans and corn and it's you know destroyed the soil and this is why like a lot of food has lost 70 90 percent of its nutritional value over the last few decades and we've been able to like delay that denutritioning like desoiling through fertilizers and other interventions but we're starting to like catch up with the consequences of that now and that's why you're starting to see some of this push for like regenerative agriculture more natural farming techniques where the land can like stay healthy over time but it's less legible you can't have a huge purdue sized company doing reg ag or at least no one's figured out how to do it yet because it's just like it doesn't fit in a spreadsheet the same way yeah 
Definitely. I think like to your point about that, like there's a great quote that he has here uh, in the book where he says, thus plants that are valued become crops. The species that compete with them are stigmatized as weeds and the insects that ingest them are stigmatized as pests. Like I thought that because those are all human labels, right? Like the forest is just the forest. It's this whole ecosystem. But everything, I mean, a weed, it could be a weed today, but if they found like a you know, a use for that plant or they would, they could, you know, use that plant as a crop, it would all of a sudden not be a weed. It would be a, it'd be a crop and then they'd have to protect it. So yeah, I think like part of it too is, um, there's way more variables than any of the high modernists can acknowledge or understand or anybody can really understand. Like, I feel like a forest has, it's like a multi-variable equation, right? It's like not just like a linear thing, like, oh, we have more of this tree equals more money. It's like, yeah, you might have that for one generation of trees, but then as you're talking about, like the soil gets overused and doesn't get regenerated and, uh, and then you end up with problems like two or three generations down the road. But a high modernist could not, cannot acknowledge basically that there's more variables than, than they can possibly know. And I feel like this is true for any time you try to dial in a system that is complex, that it's a multivariable equation. It's kind of like the Fed trying to dial in like inflation, be like, oh, if we just adjust this knob, like everything will be fine. And we totally understand how the system works. You don't understand how the system works. And there's going to be like second, third, fourth order effects that you're not really going to know. And nobody really knows till you mess, mess with the system. I, I learned of an interesting thing with gardens in California where like individual homeowners have basically become high modernists. There's like two pieces to it. One is, and this kind of blew my mind when I realized this, is the idea of like a grass lawn. The grass does not want to be there. And yeah. all these other things do want to be there. So you have to force the grass in with fertilizer. Sometimes you rip up the whole yard and get the roll grass. And you have to fight the weeds every time they come up. And you're literally at war with the natural balance of what your garden wants to be. And if you look at like a nice garden in someone's yard, it has the look of the state forest that they show in the early part of the book. But the thing I found fascinating is there's actually a town a couple hours north of San Francisco called Sea Ranch. And there's like a whole area along the coast there where their thesis was that they, I, I might get some of the details wrong here, but as I understand it, they like hated Santa Cruz because they took some of the most beautiful land in California and basically made it like sort of a planned city with fences and like single family homes and the green yards and so on. And their thesis for Sea Ranch was the houses have to blend in with the surroundings. You can't have fencing around the houses. Everything has to just flow. You can't plant anything that doesn't want to be there, and you can't remove things that do. So you end up with this really natural-looking... I mean, it's still planned, right? There's, like, roads and such. It's not perfectly organic. But relative to a community like Santa Cruz, especially with Sea Ranch being very similar type of terrain, it's really neat to see it. The the thing that I found interesting in this section was he introduces this idea of legibility and conforming... or legibility because it helps the state control an area or population or it helps a company control a system. And then he goes through all of the things that are normal now that are basically just forms of legibility implied onto formerly natural systems. So, you know, he starts with uh, like a beehive, right? And a a beehive for raising bees is this perfectly linear grid type thing where you can pull out the frames, but no bee in nature organizes its house that way, right? It's much more chaotic. And he has a good line later on in the book about how uh, one of the failures or one of the mistakes of this high modernist desire for legibility is confusing the visual external order 
with internal underlying order and structure. And sometimes things can have like a very deep, sensible underlying order that does not make sense from the outside, right? A good example of this is how trees work, where the distribution of roots and stems and leaves is actually, you know, highly efficient for capturing water, nutrients, sunlight and everything. But if a, a human designed a tree, it might be like a circle, right? Because then, you know, if it's a circle, it's getting like equal sunlight on all sides and it's it's very even, right? And then there's like a perfect grid of, of roots underneath the ground to like pull in the water. And so then he goes through all of these things that without state imposed desire for legibility would be very different, but that we've kind of gotten used to, right? So cities are an obvious one, right? The cities that we tend to enjoy the most are the ones that are not on a grid, right? When you go into the older parts of New York City, it feels way different and way more like authentic than the highly gridded parts. And obviously this is true in like Europe and Asia and anywhere with like cities more than cities from before cars, right? Because once cars were in, grids made a lot more sense as a like organizational unit uh last names was another interesting one yeah i love that part Mm. that was so interesting yeah basically there was no use for last names until you needed to start collecting taxes and managing huge numbers of people so i thought that was cool i also liked how they had like the example of where how somebody might have like multiple last names yeah it was like john underhill and john baker because he lived under the hill and he was also a baker and so like in some contexts he would be john baker some contexts he'd be john underhill and i was yeah. like yeah that actually makes sense right like locally it'd be like of course that's john like we know him well that's uh <laughs> it's like wait which the... john oh john baker like the one who's the baker not john smith who's the blacksmith right <laughs> <laughs> but all, all of the son last names are yep. remnants of this right so like my last name is eliason and i think my like great great or great 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 grandfather his name was elias larson and then, you know, his father was Lars Erickson, I want to say. And that was how, you know, names descended was your last name was your father's first name plus son or daughter. Yeah. But there aren't, there aren't any daughter last names because as soon as you married, you adopted your, your husband's last name. But then yeah, the- basically, like, whenever your ancestors came to America or left Scandinavia, it just stopped there. So Elias came – or not Elias, his son uh, – Gosh, I feel bad that I don't remember. But anyway, the first Eliason, Eliason, came to the U.S. and then it stopped. And so we've just been Eliason since then. But all of them, like Johnson, Erickson, Fredrickson, like all of them are just Scandinavian last names that ended up getting like stuck at that one. Yeah. Nat, the crazy thing is like the South Indian last names are done very similarly. So have you ever seen like a really long Indian last name? Like they're almost always there from South India and they are mm-hmm. basically a chain of their father's like the father's first name chained on to the previous one. And then at some point it stopped for legibility purposes, probably. (laughs) And that just became your last name. But it's just basically a chain of your paternal ancestors. Interesting. Uh, And that's basically how they get so long, like the names got so long. And I'm sure they truncated them, obviously, at some point. But like they just froze at whatever point. I don't know what point that was. Maybe it was when the British got there or whatever. But at some point it froze and that just became your last name. Yeah. And Pakistan still does taking your father's name as your last name. Like I, I'm the first in my family of all six of my father's siblings to not have done that. Hmm. Oh wow! new, but my father's also the only one who came to America. Yeah, I, I also like how he talks about the consequences of implementing these systems and how they end up changing the things they're meant to 
regulate. It's kind of like the, the reflexivity concept from alchemy of finance, right? As soon as you try to impose order on a system, the system changes to respond to the order. And so he has this good example of the door and window tax in France, where as the population got bigger, it was harder and harder to figure out how much tax to charge people. And so they adopted this door and window tax policy where they would estimate the size of your house based on how many doors and windows there were. And so the tax people would just go around, count your doors and windows, estimate your tax, and then give you your bill. So people started building houses without any windows and with like one tiny door so that they could just minimize their taxes while making their house as big as possible. But then people are living in these like shitty houses in the dark because <laughs> they want to minimize their taxes. But it's such a funny example of, yeah, as soon as you try to... Uh, it, it's like incentives, right? As soon as you create some incentive in the system, everyone's going to act on it pretty quickly. Yeah, and they, he had those examples for like other units of measure too, right? Like it was like the baskets of, I forget what the crop was, but it was like baskets or bushels of this. And it's like, is it like a rounded bushel? Is it a soft edge, a hard oh, edge? Oh yeah, so they made baskets like bigger it. and bigger, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was also like this tug of war too between like the rulers who wanted like, you know the the size of basket that favored them like the biggest basket and then the 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 uh peasants or the farmers who wanted like the smallest version of that possible and it's just this constant battle between who gets to i guess who gets to define the units yeah also so you have legibility which is state attempt at control through making things easy to understand then you have i don't think it's just state be- by the way adil like I, he uses a lot of state examples but i think it's like any sort of top down yeah. system and so that could be corp like because i think nat's point about yep. purdue uh was a really good one that like you can't have that same type of legibility it or, sorry you won't have that same kind of legibility in small scale regenerative farming that yep. you would need for a corporation that size i mean you see this with like relatively flat big corporations where the hierarchy is so minimal that they literally could not exert control over the lower level teams if they were so inclined so the lower level teams who are closer to the ground signal are able to perform without intervention from the detached leadership. Yeah. And that, in my opinion, would lead to significantly better performance at such companies. Whereas when you have like you know, Google with like nine levels, it's like Godspeed to anybody level five or higher making decisions about what's happening on the floor. I really liked uh, Jocko's book, Extreme Ownership, where he talks about commander's intent as a way to like remove a lot of the layers of hierarchy. And it's just such an interesting concept because he talks about how the military is obviously has a lot of hierarchy, but then on the ground, at least in the SEALs, you're given a ton of individual freedom to execute the mission. And you just have this like one, like high level goal, right? Of like, this is, you know, basically the goal we want you to achieve. And then you go like, do figure it out. However, you like whatever makes the most sense, given like the parameters of your like resources and like what's legal and those kinds of ideas of, okay, you've like created a lot of order, but then like at the ends, you almost remove order to allow mm-hmm. for like maximum surface area of possibilities. This kind of came up in scale well, too, the, the Joffrey West book, right? Where it's like human bodies with capillaries and whatnot, right? Where it's like highly ordered and then kind of like can end in chaos, right? Like if you try to maintain like strict order all the way down, things can go really poorly. But if you allow things to like, spread out and like have a lot more variation at the ends the system tends to be like a little more yeah anti-fragile resilient whatever you want to call it 
It, a lot of it, the military example makes a lot of sense to me because you have very clear feedback loops. Like if you don't give people autonomy on the ground, then people die. And that's like a fact you can't really negotiate around. Whereas things like the planned cities, you'll have unplanned outskirts mm -hmm. and they kind of keep the planned city alive and it numbs the feedback there. So you don't really know whether it's working or not, or at least even if you know that it's not working, you can disguise it. I liked his hypothesis in the book that the more regimented and ordered you try to make a system, the more it will rely on a gray or yeah. black market to support the unmet needs of the population. Yeah. So he talks about Brasilia. He talks about like Soviet uh, leadership and all those countries and how like the the more strict the system was, the more you would have people mm -hmm. kind of like secretly subverting it and, you know, you know, having to meet their needs like outside of the system. So it's kind of like this, uh, this balancing act as a, as an authority, as a power, whether it's like a, a nation state or what, where at a certain point trying to exert additional control like backfires. And then, yeah. so you almost want to figure out what's the optimal amount where you can retain some degree of control and yeah. legibility, but not so much that you just motivate everyone yeah. to like go into a, a shadow society. Yeah, it's authoritarianism is high modernism without feedback loops and democracy mm -hmm. is high modernism with feedback loops. Thanks to like voting, freedom of press, speech, assembly. So you get a quick sense of like, is my high modernism working? Which is also why we have the best examples of legible systems that do work. Yeah, because I guess you... complete illegibility is also not, I mean, well, it's okay maybe on a small scale, but from a, like a country standpoint, like a nation state standpoint, it becomes really tricky like i don't know if you could have a united states without some level of legibility yeah. you need but we also definitely have a blend like the whole yep. state and local system makes things a lot more illegible uh, and and that's that's like the balance that we have i mean but we're highly legible i mean that's almost symbolically slightly chaotic it's like all of us have a number every dollar you make yeah, is somehow tracked and recorded like yep. all of your movements in and out of the country and likely within as well <laughs> yeah. uh, like I, I think about like the natural evolution of a hierarchy just to go back to like, the corporate example if you imagine like the three of us start a company we don't need very much legibility because we're all aware of what everybody's doing. But then as we scale to 10 or 20, whoever's CEO has to make a decision to whether or not they want to install proxies to continue keeping legibility or just to outsource things. And you end up with sort of a physics of the hierarchy. Let's say you scale that up to two, 300 people and you have a number of proxies and a lot of layers in that hierarchy. The physics of the hierarchy are such that the most important things float to the top. Now that can be good or bad. It's good if the folks at the top know what they're talking about, right? So in the book, they define, I, don't, I might butcher the pronunciations here, but metis, which is like local knowledge, and then techni, which is like the mathematical absolute truths. So techni can float to the top where you have absolute truths that leadership, even without ground knowledge, can act on. But anything that requires local knowledge should not float to the top. So in order to keep a large hierarchical organization, where you are relying on local knowledge, you actually have to fight the physics of the hierarchy to keep those decisions at the lower levels because it will naturally float to the top. That's really hard. That's like a human layer on top of the hierarchy. Well, and playing devil's advocate on that a little bit, right? It's like, how do you define what's important and what floats up, right? Because like, so going back to the forest example, you know, imagine if you're like running that forest from the top and your whole concern is with like yield per acre and like revenue per acre. And then 
some little like low level guy comes up to you and is like, Hey, I think our soil is fucked up. Like <laughs> you're going to be like, I don't care about the soil. Like our revenue is great. Our yield is yeah. great. Like, what are you talking? Like that would just never float up. Right. I guess. And so I, there's I definitely a right balance for... again. Like, I don't know how the solution is, but I'm just, yeah. I, I'm just playing devil's advocate with like, that is obviously important information in hindsight, but in the moment you'd probably be like, this doesn't matter. Like everything's fine. I think you're right for like the short to medium term, but on the long term, the only metric is survival. So for a corporation, yeah. eventually you have to survive. For the forest, you have to survive. So yeah, the decision might not float to the top on the immediate term, but once survival is at risk, then it does. Like even with the forest example, eventually the Germans had to turn that whole thing around. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess then, but it's all like backwards looking, right? I, I was yeah. trying to think more like in the moment, how would somebody identify like, oh yeah, the soil is impor- yeah. important versus somebody else coming in and being like, I don't know, like we need to change the packaging on our lumber because I don't like red. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, there are things that are just not important. And I wonder what that ratio is. It's probably like 90% of the things people bring up are just not important. But then like a few, maybe a few yep. percentage points are like existential threats. And it's hard to distinguish in the moment, which is which, but in hindsight, obviously, yeah. What if you survive, that's the only metric that really matters. This is the part of the book where the book sort of consumes itself. Like it eats itself in terms of its argument because it, he's basically saying at the end, the dichotomy I introduced a minute minute ago between Metis, local knowledge and techni, the absolute truth. And then high modernism is suitable for the latter category. And he argues that you need to have these slightly chaotic systems where you can experiment and fail in order to like develop something better. And that's the beauty of the local knowledge is it's entirely experimental. But that's actually the whole point of some of the high modernist experiments as well, is that you need to do them and fail. And you can't not do them and determine whether or not it'll work or not. Like you had to do the monogrowth forest at least once to know for sure that that was an area where you needed local knowledge and not like absolute truth, right? But that's not true of every single system. So I found it to be like a touch ironic that you do need to run these experiments at least one time and introduce that chaos and you can't be too critical of the chaos. Of course, in some of these cases, the chaos is the deaths of millions of people, which is very rightfully like criticized. But for the more innocuous ones, like the state forest, yeah, you, just, you should be running experiments like this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, it kind of comes back to the feedback loops. Yeah. Right. It's like because the experiments to give you some feedback loops. Yeah. And yeah. Actually, that's a good way to frame it. Right. It's how do you respond to the feedback loops? Because he, he has this great line. Yep in there about the farmers in Tanzania, I think, where he says that a a Martian coming down and observing the interactions between the Tanzanian locals and whoever was trying to control their farming operation, the the Martian would be confused about which one was the scientific one because the (laughs) the people trying to control them were saying, no, like you need to ignore the, the like, agricultural differences and the rain patterns. You just need to farm in these like perfect grids and like plant this here, this here, and this here. Whereas the locals had already figured out how to respond to climate change and weather patterns and all of these things. And they were being actually very scientific on the ground and like responding to those feedback loops and changing their farming patterns. Whereas like the people who were a step or two removed from those feedback loops were the were like imposing order that was faith-based just based on like this blind belief that the grid would be superior so you know maybe that that's kind of where it breaks down is if you're trying to impose order on a feedback loop where you are not exposed 
to the feedback, that is where you can really get into trouble. There's a there's a comic, I forget who, but they have a good routine about like, we're not really from here. Like we like <laughs> right angles and ACs and heaters. Like we're never comfortable. We need clothes. Like we clearly are not from here. <laughs> <laughs> but right, right angles those... are kind of an interesting one too, right? Where when you're out when you're out in nature, there are no right angles, right? Like that's just something we invented because it's convenient for architecture. And I don't know about you, but I I like non-geometric stuff better. I, I feel better out in nature with weirdly shaped rocks yeah. and trees and things like that. And when you're too surrounded by geometry, it just feels I don't know, it doesn't feel the same. I, I think there's this interesting yeah, it's it is a little. Yeah. It, you just I think it's part of why you feel better in nature, right? I uh, yeah. even even stupid things like I've been walking a lot more recently, and <laughs> <laughs> no, no particular reason. We all have. We all have. <laughs> That's a different podcast, though. Different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm officially in a Black Mirror episode, and it's great. <laughs> We're all being farmed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hey, well, Strava never paid me shit, so That's <laughs> I like this better. Um, but even weird stuff, like, uh, I've noticed how nice it is to look at things that are far away. And yeah. I I think that there's actually some element of interacting with not just on geometric stuff, but interacting with things at various distances. And now we live a life where... 95% of the things we interact with are within like a 10 foot radius of us. And yep. unless you're driving, but even if you're driving, you're usually just looking at the car ahead of you. You're not looking very far off in the distance. And so when you actually stop and go outside and look at things that are far away, I maybe, maybe I'm just fucked up from being in crypto for the last year, but it was like my eye muscles needed to readjust to it. It, it was like a habit that I've slowly been losing that I had to rebuild because yeah. of just, just like how surrounded by an unnatural environment we've become. It, now we're like totally in tangent zone. But if you imagine like, you're reading, <laughs> you're reading a book, the things that you're reading in there are so unbelievably tiny. Each individual. Letter. Yeah. It's actually kind of a miracle that we can read at that fidelity. Like imagine the, all the progress that would have been lost if you could only interact with things at like the 10 foot fidelity level. Yeah. There's no reason point. for us to actually have that fidelity. Like the cats, uh, Babu and Archer, when I put a treat like three inches from Babu's face, he actually can't really see it. I have to like move it a foot away. And then he's like, oh, he's holding a treat. Or I have to put it like directly under his nose and get really close. But yeah, yeah I wonder how, why we evolved. How that. did we evolve to have that yeah. much fidelity? I mean, I guess eyesight is our best. Is eyesight actually our best sense, or is it just the only one that we use in modern life? Because I wouldn't be it's surprised if humans actually have genetically like a very good sense of smell. I mean, I, I know that like dogs have better based on like the number of you know whatever receptors in your nose, but I'm sure there is some element of ours is probably normally way better. We just never use it, but we use our eyes a lot, so it feels like that's our best sense. I've heard that, I mean, I've heard that like the senses are pretty malleable. So your point about it being what we just use more might be right. There's, um, there's a restaurant in San Francisco, or at least there used to be, I don't know if it still exists, but they only hired blind waiters. Did you guys ever hear about this? Yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah. So it's a restaurant entirely in the dark and I can't remember 
what it is, but basically the idea is to give you the experience of like trying to eat if you could like without visual cues, essentially. So you're just like, describe the food. You can smell the food. The thing that was like kind of amazing to me is like how quickly you adjust to it. Mm. So like when I ate there, it was like the first few minutes were so disorienting because there's just no, like you can't turn on your phone. There's no, there's no light. And you're just like, where am I? This is crazy. But after like 15 or 20 minutes, because they give you kind of like a lesson on how to understand what's at the table, like based on touch and, and sound and stuff. And you actually don't make a mess when you eat. Like, of course, they're not giving you like super messy food either. So they're, they're stacking the deck in your favor. But it you do adjust fairly quick quickly and you realize sort of how suppressed your other senses are by how visual like our daily life is. Well, and how highly stimulating our visual life is too yes. i mean it's, yeah. it's really interesting to see our daughter around screens because she's only six months old right so she doesn't know the difference between a tree and a phone right they're just all things in the environment but the minute there's a screen in her periphery her eyes are immediately locked onto it and we'll just you know follow it around and she has not received any dopamine from screens the way we have you know, we know there are fun and exciting things in our screens, right? Like somebody could be wrong on Twitter, right? There's a lot of good stuff in there. So, uh, but if she doesn't have any of that, she, it's purely how strong the colors are and how fast moving everything is, I think. And it, it's like hijacking her attention on some deeper level that I think is, is another layer beyond, like we already think screens are bad because, oh, you know, it's, it's nearby and we're always like plugged in. But I, I, I almost wonder if that's partially a consequence of how much of our visual attention it's able to hijack by being so insanely high fidelity and high paced and yeah. like unnatural. Right? There, there's even just. Oh, sorry. I was going to say that there's this good book, Four Thousand Weeks, about like it's called like Time Management for Mortals, and it's sort of rethinking how we think about time management and work and whatnot. And you know, one of the points he makes in the book is that we definitely have a trained response to surprising fast visual stimuli, right? Because in any other environment, that means you're about to die. And so if something is like, you know, surprising and bright and fast moving, we want, we want to lock onto that. And screens definitely just give us so much of that, that it's boring to look at trees now or even animals and whatnot, because that sense has been so, so overloaded. Uh, have you guys ever tried your phones in black and white mode, like with the color filters? Mm -hmm. I tried it, did not like it, but yeah. it would, probably because the dopamine was <laughs> reduced. <laughs> Just getting rid of the saturated colors immediately, it's so much less interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I bet it was. <laughs> I don't remember why I turned it off. I had it that way for a while, but I think that I, I tried, I tried it because you, you were telling me about it. Yeah. And it, then I was like, okay, I'll try it. And then I think I lasted like two days before I switched back. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I, I had a way to tie this back, but now I've forgotten it. What were you going to say? <laughs> I was going to take it somewhere new. Oh, cool. Go for it. All right. So one thing that struck me about the book is it struck me as very pre-software. I feel like we've covered the major bases. So I want to like, this yes. is the spin I want to get after. You have legibility, which is you can't have high fidelity and understand things in buckets. So it's almost like the zoom levels on a map. 
you're all the way down to the street level, then you can't see the big picture. Uh, if you're all the way at the big picture, you're missing the street level. But now we can eliminate that trade-off. You can go on Google Maps and start up the Earth view and then zoom all the way in to the street. And then you can even drop yourself onto the street with street view. So you have infinitely high fidelity and you can bucket at various zoom levels. You can extend this analogy to whatever other form of data you want. They also talk at one point in the book about grouping people, that they lose their individual characteristics by being dropped in the buckets based off of non-representative characteristics. When I read that, I was like, yeah, that was true. But now it's like anyone can run an ad on Facebook and you know, target all the way down to you know, a very, very small group of people. And if you had like a God's eye view on this down to the individual. So it struck me as like a lot of the issues of legibility insofar as the map is not the terrain disappears because now you can have the map and the map can also be the terrain. And the thing I'm leading to is I don't think that's better. Like, I think that's significantly worse, even though he posits in the book that the lack of the fidelity is bad. Mm. It seems now like the ad hyper-targeting, for example, what we want is less fidelity. So I would say that the la it's the lack of legibility is, or sorry, the lack of fidelity is, it's not entirely gone away because you still have, so it's much less, right, to your point about like, you do have much more uh, fidelity with the, with the data. You can zoom in, zoom out in ways that you certainly could not before. I think you still have the issue of missing variables and missing the relationships between certain variables. So like, for example, targeting, let's say ad targeting, for example, right? Like on the surface, three people who live in Midtown Manhattan might all be like roughly the same person according to Facebook ad targeting. Like they're all 30 years old, you know, they're all male. They all live in the same like five block radius. Okay, there you can learn a lot from that. Like they probably do shop at similar stores and like there's there's definitely some similarities. But you don't get you don't get everything, right? Like there's things about those people that are still not legible on a Facebook account. Or maybe they're not using Facebook, they're using like a combination of of something some other things and um yeah, I guess like what I'm saying is like there's still variables that are not accounted for. So you're you're much more legible than you were before you have much more fidelity and you can also track the relationships a lot better because it's not a human tracking those relationships. It's like a computer, which has, you know, infinite computing power essentially now. Um, but I don't think it solved all the problems because you still have to figure out the definitional definition, like of the relationships between those variables and have to account for all the variables, which I don't to, know that to you can. some degree. I actually so, don't think we're, we're far enough from that for that to be a meaningful gap. Like consider someone who has an Android phone, uses a Chromebook and then uses Gmail, Google search and Google maps. Like you have every step they take everywhere they sleep, every thought they have, everything you look on on the internet, like, and it's all aggregated. You can go to like myactivity.google.com and it's all there. It's all being logged. Everything they bought on Amazon gets distilled out of their Gmail account and put into a nice orderly list. At that point, you're really only missing like the substance of their conversations day to day, but you're tracking so much of it that you effectively have full fidelity and maybe you have something better than full fidelity because you're blacking the noise, right? You don't want 100%, it's actually like 95% is better. Well, so I, I was going to expand on your thing about it not necessarily being better a deal because there's this, I think this was from one of the books that we did Neil, or maybe it was one that I read separately, but have you guys heard this concept of like the infinite coastline where we definitely talked about this? I'm forgetting with what, yeah, book, I can't remember where we, we talked, talked about, about it. This. But yeah. basically, when you try to map a coastline, 
the more detailed you try to make it, the longer the coastline gets. And it's kind of this like weird mathematical thing where like it would sort of appear that the coastline is infinitely long because the more you zoom into it, the more you have to add little ridges and variations, which makes it longer and longer and longer and longer. And every, you know, higher fidelity you go into, it makes the coastline longer. So, you know, theoretically, it's like this asymptote where as you approach being infinitely zoomed into it, you have an infinitely long coastline because of all of these variations to it. So as we've gained higher fidelity, we haven't necessarily gotten closer to greater understanding because all we've done is just enhanced. We've, we've enhanced what we didn't know before, but we've also enhanced everything else that we still do not know in the sense of, I think there is this element of like infinite complexity to like humans and their interests and curiosities and like personalities and whatnot. And the downside of this like high fidelity from like your Google example is that we have a lot more information and that gives us a lot more high modernist confidence that we can assume everything about that person and, you know, control whatever influence them, whatnot. But that, that doesn't necessarily end up working out, you know, one for the reason that you gave around, like, we don't really <laughs> respond well to feeling like we're being fully monitored and controlled, but also because the, I think some of the modern attempts at like instituting some kind of like high modernist things using technology, like haven't gone particularly better, right? Like China's great firewall would be a good example of this where, okay, like we have the ability to see what everybody's doing on their computers and to control that. And like, you know, we can affect what the individual device can see or do, but that just results in like a further reactance from the individuals to say like, no, well, I'm just, you know, I'm going to get around it and like do my own thing. Same thing with, I think some of the stuff we saw during COVID where some people were like, no, the more you try to tell me to stay home, the more I'm going to like go out and do stuff. Right. Uh, and like we, you, you could get to this like infinite or not infinite, but you could get like much higher fidelity on understanding somebody and what they're doing, but then the reactions to it almost get worse and worse and worse compared to some of the reactions in the book. So, so the, the missing piece then is he says the missing piece is that high modernism isn't necessarily bad. It's authoritarian high modernism, mm -hmm. but actually it's whether or not you trust the organization that's doing the high modernist behavior, whether it's a yeah, government or a corporation a or anybody. Yeah. Well, and I think your point about democratic high modernism is a good one where there's like high, high modernism works when you can convince people that that is the best route forward. Right. Where and we talked about this a bit in our last episode, Neil, with wait, was that on this podcast? We talked a little bit about like all of the messed up food interventions in the 70s oh right yeah yeah, yeah. where it was yeah. like it oh you the know last episode it was a recent one though recent yeah. one though yeah it was like eat you know 12 servings of grain a day and replace your butter with margarine and all of these things and like that that was not a that was not an authoritarian intervention but it was very high modernist it was you know yes. science science has solved food and like you know and we know all the variables that's and the we know all thing. the variables exactly and how they yeah. work and how they work so it's like right. hey we know saturated fat is bad for you so therefore forget butter use margarine it's better for you exactly and that was that was like a democratic high modernist idea because it was very like you know here's the science you present it everybody kind of was like convinced and went along with it and 
then like and that's the that's where it can work because like you're not forcing it. it that one ended up going badly but like it can work as a process of convincing people and not having that like negative reaction to it that you see from the authoritarian high modernist stuff in the book right like because we've also had plenty of good examples of it right like smoking right like yeah. the, the smoking intervention is an incredible example where the u.s like i, I actually think this is one of the best arguments for it where the u.s had one of the most dramatic drop-offs in smoking of any western country since we became aware of how bad smoking was right like you go to a lot of europe and smoking's still pretty common right yeah. and and asia uh, yeah, and Asia, whereas in the U.S. it's not, but the U.S. has the least strict rules on cigarettes where, like, they don't have to put as awful of warnings on the boxes. You can't advertise on TV anymore, but a lot of it was this, like, hey, it's bad for you, and secondhand smoke is so bad, right? And so there should be, like, social consequences for it. But they never said, like, nobody's allowed to smoke anymore. You just, like, put the information out there, and people were convinced. And so it's interesting to look at, like, what of those strategies work and what don't, which ones create reactants and which ones don't. And it really is that element of authoritarianism. It's like the more you try to force people to go along with whatever high modernist idea it is, the more negative pushback you're going to get. And the more like of a shadow subculture around that thing, that's probably going to develop. What are other examples? That, that's a really good point. I'm trying to think of other examples like the cigarettes one where you just put the information out and it kind recycling. of softly becomes the norm. Recycling is probably a good one. I mean, that's not a great one because like recycling doesn't really do anything. But yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I think it's that ba- they've got it's basically the consumer a... behavior though. They got the consumer behavior, I, know, it, it... I feel like, but the, the like supply chain behind that is not well developed. So that's well, the problem. It, I, I like that. Mm-hmm. I was, uh, Ryan Orbuck had a good thing about this too. And I won't put words in his mouth because I was talking about it with him on Twitter. But basically, like, that a lot of recycling stuff was popularized by oil companies to make climate change feel oh. like an individual responsibility. That's so like in, like, um, what was the damn book we did? Uh, that yeah, was really good. Merchants, Merchants of, of Doubt. Doubt. Merchants yeah, of Doubt. Yeah. yeah. So it was like everybody was really angry at the oil companies because, like, you know, energy use was what was polluting the atmosphere. And then it was like, oh, no, it's like you're wasting all this plastic and that's what's destroying uh the environment so you need to recycle like you're the problem not us yeah but it worked right like like, we don't have a recycling bin in our house and every time somebody asks about it i feel like i just kicked a puppy or something it's really (laughs) very effective well they're trying to do something similar or at least they were last year uh when inflation was starting to get a little bit out of control oh yeah it's the company's price gouging No, it was that, but then before that, before they even got to the companies, they were like, no, it's because Americans are consuming so much, and because, like, post-pandemic, everyone just wants to buy too much stuff, and that's why everything's going up, and it's that, your that fault. One, that one, I think there's actually merit to. I, I heard a good argument about this. That some I mean, it of makes the, sense. It does make yeah, sense. Some but, of the inflation yeah. <laughs> might be transitory because uh, Americans cashed out about $500 million in home equity last year. Oh, and yeah, because uh, I could see that. Yeah, Because like home values went up so much and rates were so low. Everybody refinanced. It was about a $500 million injection into the economy, and people went out and just bought a fuck ton of stuff. And that's part of what drove some of the supply chain shortages on top of all the COVID stuff. And so when that demand slows down because you can't do that with your house anymore, like that could ease some of the inflationary pressures. And this is like a smart, you know, like, businessy investor person saying this not a politician so i'm, I'm more inclined to yeah uh to, to trust the analysis 
A lot of it's also domain specific, like used cars. Yeah. Like cars generally. Yeah, chip shortages. Yeah. Did I send you guys that article on the food shortage stuff? I don't think so. Uh, it's pretty terrifying. I, I feel like being worried about the, the food shortage now is like being worried about COVID in January or December 2020, 2019. It seems pretty bad. I, it won't affect the U.S. very much because, I mean, it's, you know, it's the U.S. Come on. But yeah, it seems like... <laughs> What's that? We have Soylent. Yeah, we have Soylent. <laughs> <laughs> years and years of soybeans. Uh, <laughs> but it seems pretty bad. It's, it's an interesting study of how these very complex systems can get really, like, wrecked by small changes, like, very upstream of the ultimate consequence. And, you know, one of the things in the article was about how like farm equipment breaks down semi often and has to constantly be serviced and repaired. And there's a lot of broken farm equipment that can't get repaired because they can't get the chips to repair it. And so there's, <clears throat> there's some big farming company now that is buying, I think it's like laundry machines they're like buying laundry machines or clothes dryers just to rip the chips out of them because it uses some of the same tech as the farming equipment and then they're just throwing the washing machines away because they don't need wow. anything else no, but it's that, the only way they can repair sense. their farm equipment that actually makes sense i once sat next to like i never realized these like i don't know what you'd call them but basically like these things that if they break down they just destroy your entire process and the amount of money you would lose by that process not running is basically yeah. worth doing like ridiculous things. So there was a guy I sat next to on the plane once uh, when I was still working at Estee Lauder and they were paying for my uh, business class ticket from, from Germany back to the US. Nice. And this dude, I'm sitting next to him on the plane and we were just talking and uh, and he was, you know, so I asked him like, we were talking about what we do. And he's like, oh, I'm like, I'm a courier. And I was like, what the fuck is this guy doing sitting in business class? And he goes, I am bringing a part to a car factory in the US that needs it today. Like there's like a part that he is traveling with that and he worked for uh well, I don't know if I should say the car company, but it was a car company that's based in Germany. It's like I've seen in Fight Club, a major one. <laughs> a major I have the same just, Yeah, I guess they all do this, I would imagine, but like anyway, it's a it was a German car company that had a factory in the US or a facility in the US and they just were like the process can't run if we don't have that part today. So if we ship it and, you know, next day air and it gets there tomorrow, we lose a day of production. And that's just totally worth sending a guy physically to the U.S. to get that part there 12 hours earlier than it would in next day air. I believe it. I know this is not what you intended to talk about when you brought this up, but are there ways to send things without escorts? Like, do you need a guy? In business class? I don't know. Like, I'm not just sure. Put the thing on the plane. I'm not sure, but I, I know I like looked it up. It's like a whole industry, and people. It tends to be like people who are in their 20s, and they make pretty good money. But it's just like, wow. well, you, I know, imagine, you can't really have a life <laughs> if that's what you do. I imagine, like, uh, even if it would be slightly cheaper, a deal to coordinate somebody to take it to the airport, and then for the airplane to fly it, and then somebody to pick it up at the airport you introduce so much extra potential chaos into the system that like just putting one person in charge of it. It's like the military thing again, right? It's like, yeah, your, mm -hmm. your job is yeah. to get this part here tomorrow. Here's a blank check. Go. That yep. probably has a much higher rate of success than trying to micromanage the process from the outside. That um, makes a lot of sense. Nat, going back to your farm equipment point, like I wonder 
so now like looking back right you can ask this question in the moment you couldn't but like adding chips to all this farm equipment is probably like a last 15 years kind of thing probably didn't happen before that and so i wonder what like the marginal efficiency improvement was like was it like a 10 20 percent improvement or five percent improvement or was like a three percent improvement but then it, it introduced this this risk of like what happens if you can't get the chips you're fine. So, so I've been yeah. I've been learning a decent amount about it from my a couple of my friends who are way more into food supply chain stuff. And apparently, like even with all of this industrialization of farming, the the acreage is actually less efficient, but an individual can manage significantly more of it. Mm. And for an individual crop, you can optimize the yield. So the net calories per acre are lower. But the calories per work hour are higher. And like one farmer can manage, you know, call it hundreds of acres or whatever, instead of having a bunch of individuals managing like small local farms. But then the flip side of that, to your point, Neil, that this article talks about is, uh, you know, it, it basically said that food shortages probably won't hit the U.S. because we have a lot of internal demand production. We have like fertilizer reserves and stuff. We can handle it. It's going to be potentially worse in like Africa, Asia, um, where they can't handle it as well. But it might hit the U.S. And one of the best ways to insulate against that is to have a uh, to be part of a CSA, a crop share agreement with a local farm that uses at least somewhat uh, animal power mm-hmm. because if they're doing a lot of their farming using, you know, rotational grazing and cows and uh, using like horse uh, power for like, you know, some tilling tilling equipment, which I guess is actually more efficient for a certain size of farm because it doesn't make sense to go buy these like million dollar combines if you're doing a like four or five acre plot, right? And they said like those ones will be totally okay because almost none of their costs are going up except for fertilizer. But if they're doing rotational grazing, they might not even buy any fertilizer, right? They might just be moving their animals around to handle it. So like they'll be totally fine. And who's going to get screwed are like, uh, who are the people who make the poison spray? Uh, (laughs) Monsanto? Monsanto, which makes... Uh, Roundup. Roundup, yeah. So apparently the main ingredient for Roundup is like based on some chemical that there's now a major shortage of because like some of it's created in like Russia or Ukraine. And so like the the Roundup only has like a four to six month supply left unless they like figure out this shortage, which means that like, and obviously you, you it'd be better to not eat food made with Roundup, but so much like of our soybean supply chain and there's so much soybean oil and everything is like based on soybean farming that if the Roundup supply chain gets wrecked, and all of the soybeans that we grow are like Roundup ready soybeans. All of the soybeans die, and we just like lose that whole part of the food supply chain. It's like a lot of calories, apparently. So it's a perfect example of how these highly industrialized regimented systems can be really good at increasing output, but you put one little chink in that system, and the whole thing falls apart. It's kind of scary. Is really scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to somebody in automotive and they were telling me about, there's like a GM vehicle. Um, maybe it's not GM. Uh, there's an American car company. It's a major car uh, company. It's a major one. <laughs> um, no, no, I wasn't saying that to cover up who they were. I just <laughs> legitimately forgot it, which one it is, but it's, it's a Detroit one. And uh, yeah, they have like parking lots full of almost completed vehicles. Mm. And the missing piece is actually this really mundane thing. 
basically some uh, I'm out of my depth here so anyone who is really versed in semiconductors listening to this if I get the details wrong just hit us a message but basically these smaller and smaller chips that are more expensive to make are much more profitable to make so everyone's like building fabs around specifically these and any of these older chips that are like larger, cheaper, so on, and nobody wants to make them. So the supply of those things, which we know how to make really well, are down. And this particular vehicle, you have this like AC knob, and the AC knob has a small display that shows you the temperature when you turn the knob. And the tiny, really simple chip that powers that is a thing that's missing. So you have like $50,000 cars on the lot waking, waiting for that thing. God. <laughs> because nobody wants to make it because the margins cost. are too slim. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So crazy. I mean, this is part of why, like, I'm not. So we have one Tesla and one like trad car, and I. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what? Trad car. Like a horse-drawn carriage. Buggy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How trad is I actually could see Ned having that like that like uh, barbell style. Uh, for his vehicles, right? It's like you got to get one of like the most advanced car, and then you get one of like the simplest car with that, zero things that can break down. That's actually what I was about. Barbell to get strategy to is <laughs> like I, I really, I would love to get the Cybertruck or whatever, but I kind of feel like the smart hedge is to have a like Toyota Tundra yeah. that was built a few years ago and is like like a 2015 or 2012 Toyota Tundra without too many miles on it. Because you can drive those things for 300,000 miles and they'll never break down. And if there's no like tech in it, then if there was like a serious, you know, grid attack meltdown type thing, yeah. your Tesla is useless. <laughs> you know, yep. you, you won't even be able to like get out of it some, uh, if you're unlucky. So I think and some of those like, Tundras a couple of years ago, they hit like the 10 year mark from the original release. And a bunch of people came out of the woodwork with million mile Tundras because they had yeah, wow. clocked out the odometer. It was all nines. It's wow. they're They're impressive vehicles. So I, I think there's an argument to be made of like, you know, barbelling, even, even <laughs> stuff like that. Right. Like if you have two Teslas and the grid goes down, you got to get out of town. Yeah. You're you're pretty screwed. Right? Yeah. <laughs> a Tesla, a Tundra, and a horse. Yeah. Uh, a, friend of mine, <laughs> a friend of mine just got into a fender bender in a new Mazda and just has to get the fender replaced. It costs about a third the value of the car because the fender has so the bumper has so much technology in it. Oh it's just all these wires. It's not a piece of metal as yeah. it should be. That's it's like wild. the parking sensors, the camera, all kinds of stuff. Wow. That makes sense. Yeah. And then there's a part shortage, which is making the price go even further up. Yeah. Net, the one thing I'd say about Tesla, though, like that's in its favor, not maybe today, but I could definitely see this being built out over time, is it's like the supply chain for electricity is a lot simpler than the supply chain for gas. That, that like, is the good counter argument, especially in Texas. Yeah. If, there's a, yeah. if there's a grid-wide meltdown, Texas actually does the best. So, mm. And like if, if we had enough solar panels on our roof, then we could just charge the car that's what at I home. Mean. That's what I mean. And, you can't like refine your own oil to turn it into gasoline like that's just not hey you know, I, you still i'm gonna start digging in my new backyard i'm gonna find some <laughs> you do live in texas so maybe maybe <laughs> we put pepper and tahoe on little treadmills to pull the oil up out of the ground <laughs> you should check out smithville before you let go of the place i know yeah uh, <laughs> but yeah but I, I don't think tesla has like i mean or not tesla but like most people would have the infrastructure to like power their own tesla if there was some kind of grid attack like that yeah but in theory but it could do okay i'm definitely gonna like get a little more 
preppery when we move into the new spot. I'm going to get the uh, the gas generator for the house, get the solar panels, you know. So, like, get it fully get kitted soybeans. out. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Austin grid has, like, broken every year for, well, for the last two years. So, it feels like the city's growing too quickly to, to handle all the influx of people. So, you need some redundancy in your systems. Neil, I wanted to ask you, Maybe now as well. I just, I know very no, little okay. about... just asking you. <laughs> well, I didn't want to assume. Uh, I know very little about India, but a lot of the legibility structures they mentioned in the book, like the way they do last names, the unifying of the language, like all these things. India struck me as like the largest country that didn't seem to have any of those, at least as I understand it from the outside. I've never been. They've had a lot of... Yeah. I mean, it's like the constant battle there and people hate the legibility efforts that the government does so they added like they have like a national id card now like we do i mean like we have a social security number they have an equivalent um you need that for like banking services for like you need that for a lot of things and the response has been there's just like a whole bunch of like underground stuff that people do to avoid that system if they don't want to be part of that like, uh, I think, I don't know the exact numbers on this, but I think there's like 1.2 or 1.3 billion people there now, mm -hmm. and uh, which is a, a ton, but I think there's only like 400 million or 500 million of these ID cards that have ever mm -hmm. been issued. So it's like, it's not even close to being the whole population. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, like, you know, anybody who's middle class or upper class will need to be, you know, they'll need banking services if you're working for yeah. any kind of, you know, sort of modern economy thing. But so much of the country is still agrarian or like rural and lives in villages and like, they don't care. Like, why do they need a bank? Yeah. They have no, no use for a bank. And so they don't need this card. That's like one thing. Another thing that they tried to do was like the demonetization thing where they just like banned one of the, like the largest note, uh, like physical paper currency note overnight. Like they gave people like a 12 hour heads up. Um, and they basically issued a new one and they said by tomorrow, like the old one is not legal tender anymore. So they were trying to get people to like take money out of their mattresses and go to like a bank and basically switch it or deposit it in, in a bank. And I don't know how people got around that. I, I have no idea. I don't know the specifics of that, but I know there was so much backlash when that happened because I mean, it is kind of fucked up. It'd be like if you, you know, they yeah. said tomorrow, like a hundred dollar bill is illegal. Like the old hundred dollar bill is illegal by tomorrow. You have to figure this out by tomorrow if you have any hundreds. And they're much more of a cash society than we are. So that's a whole nother, you know, part of it. But yeah, there's this constant battle there between legibility and like the population just not being, you know, city dwellers or like mod part of the modern economy. Have there been any efforts to like have a national language or is that like different? No, there, are, there, there, there is. I mean, English is the national language there. Okay. Uh, obviously, it's a legacy of the British, yeah. but... Um, and then Hindi is kind of like a, not a made up language, but it is a nationally imposed language in the sense that it's really only native to a small part of the country, but that has become like the de facto, like native non-English language that people use. Mm. Um, so a lot of people there speak three languages, like they'll speak Hindi, they'll speak English and they'll speak like their local, whatever, like their local area languages, but they'll usually speak their yeah. local area language with like their family and friends. And then they'll use like the other two for like work or like professional or school type of things. Yeah. It's like the external API. It is. I got turned <laughs> on to this this yeah. week because I went to go watch, uh, have you heard of RRR? 
uh, Rise, Roar, Revolt. It's like a Telugu movie. No. No, I haven't. It is amazing. It is just so crazy and so good. It's like 300 plus Gatsby plus the like story of the British in India. And huh. it's, you kind of have to like suspend literally all disbelief, just any notion you have of physics or anything, but it is thoroughly enjoyable. Anyway, I, it's also three hours and five minutes. I went <laughs> into right. uh, Jersey and checked that out. And I realized we were like booking tickets. I think it was released in like four or five languages. Like Telugu is the, is a Telugu movie, Tollywood, and then Hindi, English. And I think there was one more at least. And this is like firsthand. It's not dubbed like low quality. Oh, it's like wow. the folks who made the movie like huh. had like high quality dubs. Yeah. And they That's were uh, like, I went with a Telugu friend and she was explaining like they had hired, you know, it's a Telugu movie. So the two stars are uh, Telugu, but then they like had hired actors from like other parts of India. Uh, and then in the Telugu version, they were like being dubbed into Telugu because they didn't speak it like and the, but they had done this as a way to like market the movie more internally to be like, hey, we have our actors, we have your actors, mm. we have their actors, and like everyone could kind of get in on it. Uh, but it just made me realize like it's it'd be like in America making a movie and being like, hey, we need a guy from Texas, otherwise the Texans aren't going to watch it, right? Like we just don't really have that problem. <laughs> well, we might. We might. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a few years. Give it a few years. Yeah, we haven't hit fourth turning climax yet. <laughs> yeah, I think it's also that like. India as a country like this, I mean, people have different thoughts on this. I I personally don't think it would be a country if the British had not come there because it was never a country. It, it's not like hmm. it's not like there was a historical basis for this entire landmass being one nation. Yeah. It was like all these separate, like hundreds of separate states yeah. that were kind of all taken over by the same entity and then like glued together um, from it's a top-down like- perspective. A yeah. lot of what got done in the Middle East and Africa, right? Yeah. Just like, yeah. yeah, we're just going to like draw some lines and, you know, these are the countries. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I think like part of that, part of the thing over there too is like people have really separate regional identities. Like to the point where like my, like my family is mostly from North India. My grandmother uh, was living with um, one of my mom's sisters who now lives in South India. And my grandmother like couldn't communicate with anyone besides mm. her daughter. <laughs> Because they don't speak any of the same languages. They could, like, the only way they would communicate is, like, broke some broken English with each other, yeah. which is Take crazy. My grandmother also, like, she didn't speak Urdu. My, uh, my grandmother-in-law, so Cosette's uh, Chinese grandmother, is, so she's from, like, a small region in China. So she speaks Guangzhou, doesn't speak Mandarin or Canto. So, so she, she speaks, like, a, a minor dialect of Chinese, and she's illiterate in Chinese and English. And the she takes the subway around New York and like goes shopping and like does all of these things like without really speaking English, without speaking like the major Chinese dialects. It's wildly impressive. Like <laughs> it's so hard to imagine, right? Like being able to yeah. like, can you imagine if you like were living in a country where you don't speak the language? Nobody spoke English and you couldn't even like read and write English or, you know, the yeah. major language in the area. Like, cause then you can't use your phone. Yeah. Yeah. It's super impressive. It's pretty impressive. impressive. And she, and she lives alone. She's like in her eighties and totally independent, wow. like living here. It's pretty cool. 
That's really, really cool. Yeah. I was gonna say I was gonna say to your point about the national language being English, Neil, it's such a interesting random event or luck of history that the British were in power when sailing and like locomotion became big, and then the US was in power when flights and the internet became big, where like purely by those two being like the world powers in those eras. English is basically just the lingua fracta of the world now. And I don't really know how that changes, right? Yeah. Because I, we'll I be guess... We'll be speaking English in other galaxies. Yeah, we'll I mean... we speaking I, English all over the place. <laughs> it, it would have to be some sort of, like, global total war where, like, China wins and then forces everyone to stop using English and, like, speak Mandarin. And that's, like, such a hard thing to imagine. I guess it's possible, right? Like, anything can happen. But uh, it really seems like especially because of the internet and English being like the de facto digital mm. language, it's pretty hard to unseat at this point. Right. And it's purely just like a lucky thing of history. Cause it's not a great language. Like it's kind of shitty and confusing and it sucks for people learning, <laughs> but, but it is kind of a wild thing, right? Like India, the national language is English, right? Like it makes no right. fucking sense. But. Yeah. Yeah, to your point about literacy, that's another, if, we, if you think about that, that's another, like, high modernist uh, undertaking, right? Like, in general, mm -hmm. it's a good, like, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, right? But it is also, like, you have billions of people who probably have survived for a long time without needing to read or write. Yeah. And then you have There's these big campaigns of, like... Until you yeah. had to read, like, government edicts and, yep. you know... And, like, be able to understand. I mean, that was sort of the, their point in the book about having a lingua franca was, like, you, the government wants to impose that so that it can control the population and communicate with them and so they can understand its edicts. It doesn't want everyone to have a bunch of different dialects. Uh, on the high modernist literacy point, I was just doing a quick Google to make sure I was going to get my facts right. I couldn't find the answer. But when uh, the Ottoman Empire ended and the Turkish Republic began... That was one of the first big projects was dropping the Arabic script and uh, switching from like Ottoman Turkish to modern Turkish with like the new alphabet. And the government actually had really massive uh, education programs. And if my memory serves me right, it was something like in five years, the literacy rate, like something crazy, like 4X or something, just hmm. a massive, massive increase in literacy in very little time. I'll see if I can find the actual. Well, that was, uh, that was the Japanese thing too, right? Where illiteracy was super high i think this was japan and then they consolidated the they consolidated the bulk of the language to a thousand characters and made like a a like primary version of the language and then restricted the newspapers and a lot of media to like have to use this simplified uh set of characters and so if you learned those like thousand japanese characters you were like functionally literate in the language and it made it way easier to communicate within the country because there was much less variation in the symbols everybody was using. I think that was That's Japan. Cool. I guess it's kind of like simplified Chinese too, yeah. right? I just found the uh, the Turkish numbers were literacy went from 1 in 10 to 1 in 3 wow. in 10 years. Yeah. That's a huge That's a <laughs> yeah. huge difference. <laughs> There was there was a, a recent article that I had I tweeted like maybe it was a couple months ago um, and I'll dig it up we can put it in the show notes but it was basically how it was basically an article about how like the Indian government is really worried right now because during COVID a lot of people who had moved to cities for jobs left cities and went back to their villages and 
it was like the article was basically about how tens of millions of them don't want to come back to the city because they've like done the math and it's like not worth it for the cost of living, what the extra amount they'd make living in a city uh, versus the amount of money it would cost them to live in a village. And then also the whole idea of like being lonely in a city versus like they have their whole support structure in their village. And basically the whole article was actually saying how this is a terrible thing for the, you know, for India, but really it's kind of a terrible thing from the, maybe from the government's perspective, because people are opting to make less money and probably paying less taxes because of that. And also sort of exiting this like legible system to go back to this illegible system. But it's probably not a bad thing necessarily for the individual people. Like they've, they've experienced that city life and they're like, you know what? That's not for me. It's like the modern version of uh, American settlers running away to live with the native Americans, right? Where they would get, people would get like captured and then they'd get rescued by uh american colonists and they'd be like and then they would run away from the colonies to go back <laughs> and live with their captives they're like no that was better <laughs> like, <laughs> this shit sucks <laughs> i kind of i kind of empathize with that like another africa story the the guy who was taking us around to a lot of the like local vi villages in uh, the Maasai Mara, he was he was Maasai and he had left his village to go to boarding school in London, and so he he like grew up in the village, went to boarding school in London for a number of years, and like lived that life, and then left to go back and live, uh, you know, in like his tribal village with you know, his family and everything, but also just he said he liked that way of living a lot better than the modern lifestyle. Just like it was a lot simpler, happier, like better community, all of that. And at the time, I was like, "That's fucking crazy! I cannot imagine why anybody would do that." And now I'm sort of like, "I can, I can get that. I yeah. can see it." Right? It's like Rumspringa too, right? With the Amish. Yeah, I was about to. Yeah, yeah. There, there's there's clearly something to it. Yeah, but I can see why governments hate it. I yeah, can exactly. see why governments hate it. Yeah. That guy's not paying any taxes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Any other big things to hit? From the book i know we've been on like a half hour tangent but well I, I like that to adil's point there are just a few core simple ideas from the book and a lot of expanding on those ideas and understanding yeah. them so you know it's understanding legibility a lot of things are unnatural but are designed to make a system easier to control or understand right there's this high modernist ideology basically that like science and reason have solved all things and when there's a conflict between like the knowledge intuitively on the ground and what like the smart you know educated elites think like we should go with the intelligentsia the third element is basically that like high modernism can be fine when it's pursued democratically but when it's asserted authoritarianly authoritarianly is that right is that what you say when it's asserted in an authoritarian Close. manner things can get really bad <laughs> things get really really ugly and then the fourth then then that last part was basically like even if all of those things happen people still have to like roll over and give in and yeah. when you have sufficient pushback there can be some like checks on that uh on that authority right like i'm trying to think what a good modern example of that is i mean I, the 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 great firewall example in china is a good one right where in to some degree the difference between like the domestic chinese access to information and the domestic like north korean access to information is the extent of the controls and also the like population's willingness to 
like submit to those controls, right? Where at least from talking to all of my friends who grew up in or spent time in China, there's kind of this like, like, haha, the firewall is cute mentality, right? Where it's like, we know that a lot of this filtered information is not true and it's like very easy to get around, but it's like there. Whereas it seems like that's a lot harder to do in a much stricter environmental or informational control setting like a North Korea or is there any other country with that type of information controls as North Korea? Not that I'm aware so, of. Right? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. It, like, and that's actually, I mean, North Korea's. I mean, it's not a great example, but it, it is an example of how sometimes these systems can last a surprisingly long amount of time. I, I think it, there's like this Western idea of like, oh, the North Koreans are like crazy and stupid and ridiculous and like, haha, look at them. But they're clearly like very smart and capable if they've been able to keep this system going for so long, right? Because it's got to be the longest running highly authoritarian state in modern history, right? I mean, has yeah, them or Cuba or I mean, Cuba. But I don't also, think Cuba like, was ever on that level, right? No, no, I don't think yeah. so. Like longest running failed highly authoritarian state. Yeah. <laughs> like at least Which Cuba one? has Cuba like, some Korea? standard of uh, North Korea. But like at least Cuba but, has some standard of living. But why do we? Why would we say North Korea is failed? I mean, it's not like yeah. As I far as I know, people aren't handbook. dying in the streets, right? Like people That's are still true. alive. And going back to yeah. Dictator's Handbook, they've survived. Like, the leadership has survived. The leadership survives, yeah. Yeah. The state has survived. Tying it to the other book. Yeah. Oh, we it. got all sorts of, like, <laughs> here between the books. That's, like, we got hyperlinking here. I mean, there aren't um, a lot of people, like, fighting of... to get into North Korea. But right. there's also, <laughs> like, as far as we know on the outside, it doesn't seem to be riding in the streets and whatnot, right? Like, it's, it's an interesting case study. I think it will. Yeah. I, mean, I, I assume it will break down eventually and... Once it does, there'll be a lot more information on what was going on inside. It's going to be interesting to read those histories. Yeah, yeah I wonder how much of it is just as a result of the Chinese using them as like a wedge. Mm. And being so maybe the survival them. is yeah. like because of this outside yeah. support, like yeah. powerful prop, yeah. yeah, propping them Probably up. Probably true. Um, One thing that didn't naturally fit the conversation, but since we're wrapping up, anyone who doesn't read the book, I just want for their enjoyment to hear it, was that the French, I believe, factory workers who would protest by following orders precisely. <laughs> yes. Because the orders were so bad that the precise following of the orders would bring the factory to a standstill. Yep. <laughs> that was the best. Uh, yeah, What? There, there's a term for it, right? Like, work, work to rule, or... I didn't write it down, but... I didn't write that down either, up. but yeah. Yeah, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah work to rule that's oh, right a job yeah. action which employees do no more than the minimum required by the rules of their contract and precisely follow all safety or other regulations which might cause a slowdown or decrease in productivity as they no longer are working during breaks or during unpaid extended hours and weekends not checking email uh yeah i i think that's hilarious it reminds me did you guys? Did you guys take? I think I know you did a deal, Neil. Did you take one ten at Carnegie? Was like that a the, computer science the intro to computer science class? Yeah, I did. Yeah, the, I, did. Yep. I don't know if he did this when you took it, but when I took it, the first class, he comes in and he says, "Like somebody tell me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich." 
and then people, oh, start, yeah. yep. people start like yeah, shouting yeah. out instructions and then he follows the instructions precisely and it just turns into this like total <laughs> clusterfuck of a mess of a sandwich and it, it's such a it's such a smart way to show you how you have to like think very differently in programming versus intuitive language yeah yeah that's um i remember that that was such a good way of explaining it because yeah, yeah. computer's only going to do what you tell it to do <laughs> exactly and you have to be super precise how does this uh book tie back to crypto as we're wrapping up like i i mean i feel like there's a lot that ties into like monetary theory and like the federal I, like mm. i brought, briefly brought up the federal reserve earlier i think that's like an example of a high modernist system legibility yeah, i guess for sure else? legibility i yeah. mean the the thing that's interesting to me is i think the crypto crowd is or a lot of the early crypto crowd is inherently anti-legibility they don't want a lot of state control but crypto is literally like the wet dream of the nation state for exerting yeah. monetary controls right like I think it's kind of a done deal at this point that USDC is going to become like our version of a central bank digital currency and USDC has blacklisting in it. So if the government decides that you're like a, you know, person of unnote, they can just immediately debank you from the US like reserve currency, right? Like you can't do that USDC with dollars. USDC doesn't right have now. KYC yet though, right? Like, it doesn't have no KYC, KYC, but they could easily add it where yeah. <laughs> they could yeah. they could switch it to a whitelist system. Or they could say like, what I what I think they would do is they would have an FDIC insured USDC. And so they would say, if you want to convert your USDC to FUSDC, you need to go through a KYC process. And then your wallet will be marked as owned by you. And if you ever tweet something bad that we don't like, then we immediately take away all of your FUSDC. Uh, it's like, it's the perfect tool for a highly legible, highly controllable financial system, which seems totally antithetical to the original crypto ideals. But... Like you could not have designed a better one for exerting massive state control over the money system. The one, the one difference <clears throat> we were talking about feedback loops, like, and we use examples of like freedom of press, speech, and just like having ground truth to see if something is working or not. Crypto has legibility, but the feedback loop there is the exit cost is low. Yeah. So you can actually switch from one place to another quite easily. Now with FUSDC, that will likely not be the case. Uh, but you have something that's highly legible where control is decentralized instead of centralized. So it's like both high modernist, but if it fails, the exit costs are low. Yeah. And high modernism with experimentation is not necessarily bad. Yeah, that's a good point. You have a lot of yeah. alternative options that you yeah. could switch to. And I think that you the there is also this element of like we might see a return to the desire for hard money if like we have this rampant inflationary mm -hmm. issue and if we have this if we have like downstream effects from uh debanking russia where other countries mm -hmm. you know no longer want to keep all their reserves in u.s treasuries then you do probably have a return to hard money which would necessitate like collecting gold and or bitcoin which I love you guys read Arthur Hayes stuff very much. He's a pretty interesting character, but he's he's got a couple of good pieces recently where he's basically arguing for like gold to hit ten twenty thousand uh, dollars because oh, wow. countries wow. are because it'll be the first time since uh, Bretton Woods that countries have a strong motivation to like start collecting their own gold reserves again, and it's kind of that was nineteen seventy one, right? Uh, no, Bretton Bret Woods was post-World War II. So Bretton Woods was the okay. first. Bretton Woods was when we said, okay, no more 
every country holding gold. Instead, the U.S. is going to hold all the gold, and all the other countries are going uh, to use U.S. dollars. Just send us your gold. Yeah. yeah, just send us your gold. We'll hold all of it. Uh, don't worry about it, guys. It's fine. Uh, yeah, and we'll peg our we'll peg our currency to the gold, so that you know your cur- your all your stuff is backed by gold. And then in the seventies, we were like, "Hey, just kidding. We're not backing it by gold anymore. You just got to have faith." <laughs> Faith in us. <laughs> like, it's all good, guys. We promise not to devalue our currency and print trillions of dollars in two years. Uh, and then we did. So I don't know what they do now. <laughs> Going back to uh, crypto for a second, they probably don't even need to KYC all the wallets. Now that I think about it, they could just KYC the bridges between like the, re- the regular economy and the crypto economy. Like, they could make it really hard to get your money out of crypto pretty much everybody's already kyc'd anyway too on exchanges like, yeah cha- chain analysis is so good at digging up too. who you yeah. are and like if you've ever interacted with any exchange then you're kyc so like sure if you have a bunch of yeah. crypto that you have never pulled out in any way shape or form then yeah sure it might not be kyc you could like maybe start working on a project and have them send funds to a non-kyc wallet but i mean there's also probably chain analysis stuff going on where they can like track ips interacting with oh, alchemy sure. and infura to sign transactions and they can see that the signatures from this wallet are coming from this ip address which is also associated with all these other accounts like it's not hard to track this stuff back to people you'd have to be so insanely paranoid and on top of your infosec to not have all of your wallets be at least secretly kyc at this point so then I guess then from that standpoint, crypto is actually wonderful for the nation state. Oh, it's incredible. It's the best thing yeah. ever invented yeah. for state controls on money. Although I think Adil mentioned in the pre, I think it was the last episode, uh, maybe it was Dictator's Handbook, maybe it was a different one, um, where you were saying it's like this almost like arms race, right? Between like the privacy tech and like crypto tech versus like the state surveillance tech. Yeah. In some domains, like in... You could hypothetically see a world where like Zcash gets adoption. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't bet on that. But. Well, I think that's going to be one of the big fights. Is that we've now got, uh, gosh, what's it called? There's a layer two on Ethereum that does fully obscured transactions. So it's like Zcash, oh, but it it resolves to Ethereum, and but it's not like Tornado Cash where it's just like in and out. It's like yeah. you could be on, you could build a Venmo app on this layer two to like make payments to all of your friends. And then, you know, you could event, it's kind of like lightning network, but you know, but on Ethereum, but on Ethereum, you have fully uh, cool. private transactions. I think like that stuff might get regulated. I wouldn't be surprised because the government doesn't want that stuff to exist. And then like the, and I, I, I hope USDC becomes kind of like the central bank digital currency instead of the fed, like trying to issue their own and competing coin. in the market. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But also to a deal's point, you can always just hold other things. So you could hold like UST or die or you know, MIM or any of the other like stable coins that are out there. They would have to like, they're, they're, then there would be two versions. One would be your wallet can no longer withdraw to exchanges. If you are holding any of these fraudulent stable coins, right? Like that would be the highly authoritarian version, which, you know, hmm. some people would probably like to do, but we have to hope doesn't happen. And then I think the the positive democratic high modernism version would be this will be the only stable coin that is FDIC insured. So yeah. if something happens to the network, we will reimburse you up to 250 grand of your reserves in this stable coin. And then there's like a really positive reason to hold it and to give up some privacy for financial security, but they're not like forcing you to do it. Like if you want the more privacy focused, you know, altcoins, then go for it. You just won't have this insurance. 
And that's like the the America I believe in. That's how they would do things and not the highly authoritarian version. But yeah, remains to be seen, I suppose. We need stable coins that's to stop real... fucking blowing up because they're not helping <laughs> by like occasionally just going to zero and wiping out $100 million at a time. <laughs> Nat, the real question is, uh, which country will be the first to adopt GST as their as <laughs> Dude, it'll be the fittest country in the world. I like, yeah. I, I shit you not, I've lost weight. I've been getting compliments on how much tanner I look. Like You do. You do look it, good. It's, I, I hate what a better person Stepin has made me. Like, <laughs> taking the dogs on longer walks, like... <laughs> have more time walking with our baby like Cosette and I go on more walks and like hang out and talk to each other and we're making you know stupid crypto money while doing it like I think we should get some some uh some some GST for this like endorsement you just gave seriously on think yeah I it's it's the most <laughs> absurd thing ever but it's also a lot of fun and, and like to their credit they're onboarding more people to crypto than like almost anything in recent history oh for like, sure i mean i i really think the two killer apps for crypto are games and stable coins and those are going to be yeah. what onboard the most people and we're now seeing like the games come online and for for all of solana's issues they do make it the easiest to go from coin in coinbase to wallet on your phone that you can do stuff with without paying 30 dollars for a transaction fee right so the fact that you can just like download step in sign up send solana straight from coinbase buy a sneaker and go make a hundred bucks is like pretty fucking cool yeah that one of our uh mutual friends john john uh, yeah he was early well on. actually mutual friends i met him through you in austin so that's <laughs> like five or six years ago yeah um but his He's he's a, one of the people who was on like even the test flight version of Steppen. He's been doing it for a long time. His pushback, and he's obviously he has a lot of like sunk cost in the game and uses it a lot. But his pushback every time I get like very very bullish on it is he's like, well, there's still the app store risk of like yeah. Apple just being like, yep, you have a wallet in the app, like you have all these transactions happening, and we're not getting a cut. So fuck you. So the <laughs> and then they delist it. The two things that I've heard against that are one, there there is no US dollar transaction involved in That's the app true. at all. And you can't like buy crypto or do anything. You can only send it in and then transact in their marketplace using Solana. You can't use US dollars either in app or online. So that's yeah, one way so there's no dollar transactions. Exactly. Yeah. And then they apparently I guess like this might be part of why they raised money from Sequoia because Sequoia has such strong relationships with Apple. And so like oh, through smart. that, they have like a really strong backdoor relationship to like work with them to make sure they're being like compliant and everything. Cause they're the first crypto app that's, uh, they're the first crypto game that's been allowed in the app store. It's actually, it's a really big deal for the industry. Um, it's huge, yeah. It's huge, but it's so easy to start using it. Like that's the, the beautiful thing about it. Yeah. I mean, there, but to John's point, there are basically like three things I'm watching where if one of them happened, I would like sell all of my shit immediately and exit the game. And one of those is if they announce an update and then the build gets rejected from the app store, mm. I would, because it wouldn't, that wouldn't get the, the game wouldn't be taken down. They would just say like, oh, hey, we had an issue with the update. And so we need to like resubmit it to Apple. Like we'll try, you know, expect for it in 48 hours. If that happened, I'd be like, okay, like evacuate the dance floor. Like this could be it. Um, but because that seems like there is always that chance, right? But we would have a warning. We wouldn't wake up and the app would be gone. They would just get like the next version rejected before 
that would happen. Usually that's how it works. I guess it could change. Apple could just be like, no, just kidding. Your app is gone. Um, but that would be pretty bad. That would be shocking. Yeah, yeah. that would be pretty shocking. Were there two other things or is that the only... Oh, I guess I'll there? share the other two things. I, I really hesitate to share like, financial <laughs> stuff publicly, especially with Stepin, because like it's it's the most incredible Ponzi ever created. And I really <laughs> yeah. hope it doesn't like go down in flames. because the, And there are ways out of it, but... Like somebody hearing me being excited about it is going to be left holding like a terrible bag. Um, so, <laughs> you know, just understand any money you put into this thing could go to zero, could like, you know, you might lose $10,000 on imaginary shoes and get made fun of for the rest of your life. So keep that in mind. Uh, but the other two things would be like, there's public dashboards where you can see how much Solana is going in and out of the game. And like, I watched that pretty closely because if there's a, if there are a few days in a row where a lot more Solana is coming out than is going in, then that suggests that a lot of big whales with a ton of sneakers are dumping their supply and exiting. And they're like, okay, you know, the roller, the ride's over. Um, and that would be, I think a good sign that like, you probably want to get ahead of that exodus. And then the third one would be, I guess I have to go review what? my notes. I can't remember what the third one was. But <laughs> there's well, another one. It- if anyone's listening to this, we'll, we'll put this in the show notes. You know, if you want to learn more about Stepin, Nat wrote a really good article. I think oh, it was like Nat last week it? or two weeks ago, right? Yeah, a few weeks ago now. A few weeks ago, yeah. Two. Nat, was it when they start letting everybody in? They get rid of activation codes? So, yeah, I mean, that that would be the other one. Oh, oh yeah, you're right. That that was the last one, which is yeah. uh, there's... So you can you can look up the metrics on how much the app has been downloaded. And you can look up the metrics on how many uh, lifetime players there have been in the game. So right now, there have been like 300,000 accounts ever created. But there are like a million and a half total downloads for the apps across Apple and Android. Which means there's like 80% of people want to play and cannot play. There's 1.2 million people waiting in the wing to play who like don't have an activation code yet, can't get in. And it may be even more than that, right? Like... Axie at its peak had about 3 million daily active users. Farmville at its peak had 32 million daily active users. So like how many people could like play this game where you just run around outside? It's a lot. But there are at least right now, at least over a million people who want to play who can't. But if that starts to get smaller and smaller and nobody's looking for activation codes anymore and there's no like constant stream in the Discord of people saying like, give me an activation code. I want to play. I want to play. I want to play. That would be a sign that you're like hitting peak market saturation and there won't be further demand for sneakers and you want to like probably get out before that like falls apart because like all of these systems the it all only has value as long as more people are coming in and buying sneakers until they introduce other sinks it only works as long as the game is growing and as soon as it stops growing all of that price action pretty much has to collapse so you just don't want to be caught at that part of it and like for them, I actually kind of want, like, I would I would actually prefer if they just got that over with now and then could, like, let the game build more sustainably. But they're, like, stuck between a rock and a hard place because so many people are so excited about the game that everybody wants to come in and play, which is causing this growth. And if they turned off the activation codes and let everybody in, it would grow, like, 10 times faster, but, like, flame out much faster and harder. So I, like, I have a lot of empathy for the team given the hard situation they're in because it's a really tough... I think beast to manage being like the absolute hottest girl in school right now, at least. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, for a a deal, I posted one of my activation codes in the discord like last week and it was gone within seconds. Yeah. Like it was insane. 
I've never seen anything like that. Like I literally posted, then I refreshed my app on my phone and it was gone. <laughs> yeah, the, the activation code Discord is hilarious to follow. Yeah. It's just nonstop. <laughs> but yeah, this is not financial advice. This could all flame out. Yeah, exactly. Like tomorrow. Walk this could flame out before the episode comes out. So could. that would be actually kind of funny. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> 